From Hong Kong, this is Maya Kulpa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based on the Postmortem Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. I'm Jeffrey Brewer, and today we talk to Fritz Demopoulos, founder of Queens Road Capital. Before that, he was the CEO co-founder of Huawei.com, which was bought by Tom.com, and CEO co-founder of Tunar.com, which IPO'd in 2013. Welcome, Fritz. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Just to start out, how did you end up in startups? You know, I always wanted to uh, be an entrepreneur, set up my own business. My parents are also entrepreneurs. They're immigrants to the U.S., and so that influenced me. I didn't think I'd be setting up a business in China, but... You know, sometimes I was working in China at the time and I was an expat and I realized that sometimes you can't pick when you set up a company or the timing of it. And I was just in Beijing at the time. Things were taking off. It was 1999 and that was when the consumer economy was really lifting off and there was a lot of investment and it just seemed like the perfect time for me. How did you end up in China to start with? So I was working in the media industry. I was fortunate to be uh, given an opportunity to uh, be part of a business development team based in Beijing for the News Corporation, so which is one of the large media conglomerates. And I was just very lucky to have that chance. And so um, although other opportunities paid a lot more money, it just sounded like the coolest thing to do. Okay. How much connection did that job had with the startup that you started? Well, I think I was very lucky because one of our businesses at News Corp was an internet company. So we had this team in Beijing and we were investing in magazines, post-production facilities, but also online content. And so I was able to see firsthand how to build an internet company. And secondly, I think that some of the lessons that you know we've picked up along the way, especially in Web 1.0, very much relate to the media industry. Talk about like the first startup that you did. What was the original idea? Like came the idea from you or like did you like just bump into it somebody who gave you that or? Yeah, so it was, I guess, 1998 at the time and I was still working for News Corp and I had the fortunate opportunity to meet with Mr. Murdoch who who, who obviously founded and, and even today still runs the company. And um, he told me a couple of things in that very short meeting. One was, don't you think we should push the envelope in China? i.e. let's take some more risk. And I just love to hear that. And secondly, he said, oh, by the way, we make a lot of money in sports. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, we make a lot of money in sports. And I started thinking about, to answer your first question um, earlier in the podcast, was, you know what? There are some lessons that we learned from the media business. Sports makes a lot of money. And in the online world, maybe sports will also make a lot of money. And so that was really the initial inspiration to set up Sha Wei. The reason why we picked Sha Wei, which means Brave Shark in Chinese, is we had to cut through the clutter. Even back in 1999, there were a lot of startups, a lot of action in China. So we had to build a business that somehow could capture the imagination of customers. Um, and, and our thesis was within the traditional media industry, um, whether it's Fox Sports, ESPN, CCTV5, which was the state-run broadcaster that broadcasted sports, they were all very successful. And we thought, you know what? We can be an online version of that. From that, I saw that you had a little excursion working for a boss at that point. How was the transition from going from like a company that you founded, that you exited at that point, then working for a boss again? Well, it was interesting. 
one of my um, early investors in Shaw Way, SoftBank, was also an investor in a company called NetEase. Oh, and also News Corp, by the way, <laughs> where it was also an early investor in NetEase. Both the uh, board members, the board of NetEase included a representative from SoftBank and one from News Corp, and they both encouraged me, you know what, you need to check out this company. This company is going places. And keep in mind, this was in 2000, late 2000, when the internet bubble had blown up. The first internet bubble had blown up, and a lot of companies were in trouble, and no one in their right mind would consider rejoining an internet company. Everyone was rushing to get those banking and consulting jobs again. Um, however, upon the advice of Michael Tong from SoftBank and Laurie Smith from News Corp, who were both on the board, I decided to take a second look. And, and when I walked the halls of NetEase, um, you could tell this company was on fire without even seeing the P&L and even understanding the products that um, they were about to launch, you felt this company was just doing well. And sometimes you have to walk around the halls of a company to really get a sense of what's going on. When I was walking the halls at NetEase, the offices were packed, people were on whiteboards, writing and you know drawing all sorts of charts. It, was, it, it just had a great buzz. Um, but specifically to answer your question, was it tough? Yeah, sure, because when you're the boss, it's kind of hard to work for someone else again. What were most of the learnings that you took to NetEase? Did that work, your experience there? or Sure, a little bit. You know, I, I think at Shaw Way, um, you know, keep in mind, we were a first mover, and you know, NetEase was an established company, um, so it was slightly different. But you know, we, um, you know, building brands, building teams, you know, business development, hustling. I mean, all those skills which apply to a startup also, I think, apply to a, a growth stage company as well. Huawei was acquired by Tom.com. That's also a Chinese internet portal, right? Right. They didn't ask you to stay there or join them? Yeah, we had an initial period of six months to help with the transition. And then after that, uh, we'd have a longer conversation. Um, and at that time, you know, Tom had uh, a number of interesting people in the sports business and you know, I thought it would be, you know, better for me to really move back up to Beijing. So Tom was based in Hong Kong. I mean, I mean, luckily, like I met my wife through that process. I mean, she kind of worked for Hutchison at the time, which was at that time, the controlling shareholder of Tom. Yeah. So I, I thought about it a lot. And um, once you're addicted to the action in China, it's hard to uh, go to other places, including Hong Kong. Okay. And then you work some time at uh, Netties, and then it starts boiling again, or like it starts like you get that itch again, or how does Chuna started? Yeah, so me and my co-founders of Sha Wei, the sports site, you know, we had always gotten on a call, and we were saying we got to do another business. Then now it's around 2004, and you know those conversations started heating up again, and we had some ideas. And next thing you know, we found a Chunar. Where did the original ID came from to do something in travel? Uh, one of my co-founders, uh, he made this interesting insight, Douglas. So, so we were sitting at a Starbucks, uh, the Airport Express in Hong Kong. And the three of us were just, we got to do something. And, and Douglas said, well, you know, Google makes a lot of money from a few very specific verticals. You know, travel is one of them. So it was automotive, financial services, stuff like that. And we thought, wow, maybe we should take a deep dive into travel. If Google's a big company and one of the hottest in the world, even in 2004, one of the hottest companies in the world, and travel was a big source of their revenue, could we build a better mousetrap? 
that was just the basic thesis. And then my other co-founder, C.C. Zhuang, who eventually became the CEO of the company after I took a step back, he started um, really thinking about it and proposed this price comparison engine, which was our first product. Can you paint a little picture of the landscape back then? Because now, of course, you have a lot of price comparison. Uh, there are like a lot of bigger players, which also at that point quite often consolidate in just like a few of them, but like have different brands under their uh, umbrella. Back then, when you started Tunar, especially in, in, in China, like how, how did that playing field look like? We were lucky. There weren't many players whatsoever. And most people we met didn't think it was a good idea which is perfect because if people don't think if, if the wider community doesn't think your company has any potential or the idea you're working on isn't very good, you're going to have less competition, which gives you the breathing space necessary to learn about an industry network, meet the players, make some silly mistakes, which we did frankly in the early days. And, and so you're right. So that landscape, there was one company called C trip and another one called Elong. They were dominating the online space. And, 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 and a lot of people said, well, it's game over. You know, it, it's almost like when um, someone said, everything's been invented already. I think this was in 1920. Remember that, you know, some funny quote. And, you know, similarly, people told us, well, everything's been done in travel. And again, this is way before our company scaled. It's way before Skyscanner launched. Um, Get Your Guide, Airbnb, all these amazing companies came even after us. Does that mean that if somebody says you cannot do anything or the thing that you're doing is not the right thing, does that make you way more determined as a person to actually make it happen? Yeah, absolutely. I think when you take a risk in life, there are usually three pieces of feedback you get. They could discourage you or they can motivate you. The first piece of feedback is people don't think you're capable. Now, maybe they don't tell that to your face, but they'll use funny words like, I think you're a nice guy or you're a very friendly guy. But what they're really saying is, I don't think you're capable. And, and then when you hear that enough times, you just roll your eyes because they don't really know you. Um, that's the second piece of feedback that you get is, okay, you're capable, but I think your idea is stupid. Again, they may not say it's stupid. They'll say something like, Americans love to say this. Oh, this is really interesting. That's a really interesting idea. But the reality is, it could be a brilliant idea, but, but they just don't understand it. They haven't put none of the time and energy that you have in developing it. Um, and then the third piece of, of feedback that you always get, and you know, we get it from our parents and our friends too, is, well, you know, Jeff, I think you're really lucky. You know, like you spent all those years working hard and you've utilized every single resource you've had and you've exploited your capabilities in the best way, but I still think you're lucky. <laughs> and, and, and so those pieces of feedback we always get, when I hear them from family members or, or close friends, I mean, um, I can't help but chuckle. And, and yeah, I think it motivates me. In fact, I think if people don't understand your idea, it's almost a compliment because how many people really have the vision? Of course, I mean, we should be self-aware and we should challenge ourselves. I'm, I'm not saying we should not challenge ourselves. We should always challenge ourselves, try to understand our limitations ourselves as well as the limitations of our business plan and our ideas. I think we should do that. But frankly, you're probably the best person to actually draw those conclusions, not some outsider who hasn't spent much time thinking about your idea. Up until now, what we discussed sounds great, very smooth, maybe some hiccups here, but like what in that period of time building Huawei and Tuna were like one of the biggest issues that you came across at that point? I mean, we had um, all sorts of challenges, building teams, motivating people, figuring out product market fit. 
I think all those were just big challenges. I would say not any different than you know some of the great companies today, frankly. We're trying to extract resources from the external environment, money, people, government relations sometimes, uh, you know, technology partnerships, uh, distribution deals. These are all things where we're trying to pull into our business. They're always challenging. We've got to convince people to believe in us. Some people do, and some people give us a break. And by the way, we always remember the people who were gracious and gave us a break. And very few did that. And we were immensely grateful even today. Eternally grateful, I should say. And so that was one of the things. And, and, and also, you know, managing our teams and aligning, you know, our, our interests is very, very challenging. And especially in a place like China where it's highly dynamic and it's very transactional and mercenary-like in many ways. And lastly, strategy. Some people say it's 95% execution and only 5% strategy. I think that's right. However, we make all these choices along the way that somehow relate to certain strategic insights that we have really lead to immense success. And sometimes we made mistakes along the way and, and sometimes we were really smart about it. From that perspective, when you exited Junar, you became an investor. So that's the other side of the table. What was your biggest challenge there? Like I can understand the the investor side, I can understand the entrepreneur side, but like what is the biggest challenge for an entrepreneur turning investor? I think there's a few things. As an entrepreneur, we're following dreams. We have a mission. Investors, we kind of have a mission and we kind of have dreams, but it's less stark. It's less intense. And so sometimes we struggle uh, as investors because we kind of miss that. We, we, we kind of miss the vibe. We kind of miss that energy. As investors, our success will come from being a little bit disciplined. We need to be diversified. We need to have a systematic process. We need to be self-aware. Yes, some of those apply to running a company, but it's slightly different. Um, and, and so that's one of the big challenges is just dream versus portfolio management, I guess you could say, and kind of getting used to that, you know, frankly took some time. But I would add that um, being an entrepreneur, being an investor, being an advisor or a mentor, or, or just being a friend or a coach to other entrepreneurs, you know, we do very similar things sometimes. We're mentoring people, we're providing insights, whether those people work for us, whether they're companies we invested in, or whether they're just, you know, entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs. And I think those sorts of things are always going to be the same. Um, and, you know, that I kind of enjoy and that I don't miss because I'm still doing it. From like being an entrepreneur, you're always looking for money, probably for fundraising. And now you're on the other side. People are always knocking on your door for money. What are the first few things that you always take into account before you take a meeting with somebody, especially the things that you took away from being an entrepreneur? I mean, that's a good question. I think um, references and warm intros are always valuable. There's people we respect in the community, and if they tell me, oh, this is an amazing company, or this founder just has something, I mean, something about this guy or girl. And I'll very much look forward to having that conversation. I mean, having said that, um, 
what's really important to me. And, you know, it's pretty obvious, but, you know, like we care about the founding team. How motivated are those founders? What really drives them? What skills do they, you know, bring to the table? Do they kind of listen to us? And the rule of thumb is we want founders to listen to us about a third of the time and two thirds we want them to ignore us and push back. Because that's what, to me, seems to be some successful traits of, a, of an amazing operator who has a lot of vision. Is they take what's important and they tell us, you know, forget about the rest, sorry. And so I really think about that a lot. I really try to understand uh, those life transitions all the way back in college. You know, why did that potential founder make those decisions? And really try to understand, you know, really understand how they think, what motivates them, and somehow extract some knowledge about their skills and capabilities too. I mean, to me, that I weight immensely in my decision whether or not to invest in somebody. If you look at the current ecosystem, not even in Hong Kong, but like Asia, China, maybe even the world, what do you think are the good things and the bad things of the current like startup ecosystem? Well, the good thing is there seems to be an endless supply of amazing people. <laughs> so I like that. Um, if you just go across the border into Shenzhen, you can't help but feel the energy. Everyone wants to do something. People are very optimistic. Studies have shown that Chinese are much more optimistic about their future than their parents were, which is the opposite in other markets in the world. That we like, and we think that's a great pillar of the ecosystem. Um, I think another pillar of the ecosystem that's not so good is there's a lot of capital, and there's a lot of reckless capital. There's smart capital, and there's reckless capital. And sometimes the reckless capital really changes the equation it makes it much more difficult to do deals. Prices or, or, or valuations are a bit high. Um, sometimes the terms we see are you know, not what we're accustomed to and, and don't like too much. And then also when founders get used to that. And when founders get used to that, they may not have the patience for you as an investor to get to know them. They might be like, well, I got all the other people who are willing to, to, to invest in me. Why should I spend time with you? So that presents a challenge. It's something we can overcome, but that presents a challenge. So I think it's a second part of the, the ecosystem that you know makes it in these times kind of unique. Um, I think a third part of the ecosystem is this idea of corporate entrepreneurship. We've seen corporates realize they got to get in on the game. You have large companies like Ping On, and, and I would categorize Tencent and Alibaba as corporates now. They've been around for 20 years, but they continue to innovate. They continue to launch products. So this idea of corporate entrepreneurship seems to be a big part of the equation in these ecosystems as well. Usually when we talk about corporate entrepreneurship, then quite often what you see is the people who work inside of corporate and develop a product are not as committed and engaged as founders because they might not have a equity upside or they might not have the real feeling of a founder because at that point they don't have to go out to raise money or they don't have to go out to validate things outside of their uh, corporate. How do you see that work? It's true. I suppose I'd always bet on the startup guy over the corporate any day, assuming resources were similar. But, I mean, this isn't black and white. There are some entrepreneurial people who are motivated in corporates. And frankly, uh, corporates have stock option programs too and bonus structures and all that sort of stuff. And so we see you know, exceptional people getting nice bonuses if they can really pull off something amazing. And I wouldn't describe it as corporate's bad, all entrepreneurs good. I would say that 
yes, it's true that entrepreneurs and early stage companies incentives tend tend to be much more aligned with greater outcomes. But that's not to say that it doesn't exist in, in the corporate environment. And and again, we've seen some of these amazing corporates that have continued to launch businesses, billion dollar businesses. And they're they're getting a little bit smarter. Oh, and keep in mind we live in an open source world. Meaning, you know, all those technologies and off the shelf apps and solutions everyone has access to and it's Pay as you go now. You don't have to pay any money for it. You have to, you have to subscribe to it. I mean, cloud-based stuff, right? Every year, there's hundreds of thousands of computer engineers that are, are that, that are graduating, and some of them join companies. Whereas a, a number of years ago, corporates were um, caught flat-footed. Today, you know, they can be a little bit more aggressive. They can take advantage of all these trends and developments that used to be only reserved for entrepreneurs. Um, now that you're an investor, are there any like learnings that you can share about investments that you did that later on failed that you can talk about? Yeah, sure. Um, there's a couple companies. Um, in fact, almost all companies seem to have pretty good strategies. Uh, we tend to fail on the people side. <laughs> Without mentioning the name, one had an amazing CEO, great interpersonal skills, but would have been better in corporate. <laughs> Maybe couldn't handle the uncertainty. And we probably should have spotted that uh, before we invested. And so we, we, we always ask ourselves, okay, there's a company that failed. And we usually get together with the investors. So what happened? What did we miss? Let's try to learn from this experience. As we should always. We should always try to learn from our mistakes. And it seemed to come in, in two cases. I'll, I'll say in, in two cases, we had founders who had great interpersonal skills, but maybe they didn't push back enough. Um, maybe they weren't abrasive enough. Maybe they didn't want it bad enough. It's interesting. There's a lot of founders we meet that love the idea of success, but are they willing to go all out to get it? it it's a major life sacrifice. And are they willing to do that? And maybe... These capable two founders on these two companies I'm referring to, they, um, they, 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 they certainly had the desire for success, but did they have that brutal ambition to get there? Um, I, I, I guess I'm not sure. And plus, um, maybe, maybe their personal toolkit was missing a few things. Quite often, I also meet a lot of entrepreneurs, people who, who want to be an entrepreneur just to be an entrepreneur. Some of them come pretty far. Uh, most of them will be weeded out pretty early, but some of them, how much do they really want this? Um, uh, how much do they really want to prove themselves to everybody else? Um, from a investor perspective, like what does the, the motivation that you can have mentor add to a founder uh, or a company that you're invested in? Or do you say like that has to come from within and I can only cheer from the sidelines. I think if I had to give some advice or offer some perspective, I think a few things I think are really important. I think number one is founders or entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs or whatever you call them, they need to have a strong personal life or a stable personal life. They can't have distractions in life. That means if, if they have a spouse, make sure the spouse makes some money. Make sure they own their apartment or something because those personal pressures can have an impact on business. 
So you need to be personally ready to take this entrepreneurial adventure. A friend of mine had four young kids when he set up a company and it was crazy. I'm, he actually pulled it off and it was a huge success. But I was, I was thinking, this guy's crazy. And so there are some exceptions to the rule. But I, th I think generally, get your personal side ready for this adventure. And so when you dive into it, you won't have those distractions. Um, I, th I think a second piece of advice that's really important is, you know, we have to recognize, you know, the serendipitous nature of entrepreneurship. And sometimes we're just lucky. Um, sure, we're capable and smart. You know, put it this way, the, the only people who are entitled to say you're lucky is yourself, <laughs> but no one else. Um, and, and, and we just need to recognize that um, sometimes things a little bit beyond our control are, are, are having an impact on, on our success. So what does that mean? Well, that means I think, um, and I, I've, I've talked about this before, you know, the rule of 10 and 3. Over 10 years, do three startups. If the first one works out well, hey, that's great. Right? You can start mentoring people and go on all these podcasts, right? Or maybe it's the second one. But after the third one, if you haven't broken out yet, then you're right. Maybe it's better to get a job somewhere, right? Maybe join one of these corporates we were talking about earlier. But, but that's how I think about it is you, you have to commit personally. To, over the next 10 years, I'm going to commit to doing three startups. And the first one, we hope it works. And what's going to be a tough decision is to say, you know what, this isn't working. I'm, I'm going to do something else. I'm going to cool my heels, talk to some people, get the personal life in order again, and go for the second one. And if that doesn't work, the third one. Um, and, and, and to me, that's probably the best strategy. And, and keep in mind, uh, the probability increases, by the way. If only whatever the number is, it's pretty low. Um, you know, in, in order to get a, a fair to mediocre outcome, <laughs> I I don't know what that probability is, 10% or something like that. And of course, to get an exceptional outcome might be 1%. But if you do three of those, the probability just increases. And I think you owe it to yourself to kind of do that. At one point, I did talk about the cost of uh, startups and then not only yeah. the monetary cost. It was also um, uh, the cost of mental health, the opportunity cost. And like uh, as, a, as a founder, you... Yeah, you can also need to work for uh, corporate, uh, have a cushy job, uh, insurance, etc. Uh, etc. Et and of course, indeed, uh, relationship cost. And uh, we already talked with a few other uh, people on, on this podcast, and uh, almost every single one of them uh, said something about relationships, uh, either be it a divorce, either be it... Uh, sickness or, 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 or something else. Um, uh, at one point at the uh, postmortem conference, we had a founder uh, talk about the fact that his girlfriend at that point came uh, to him, said like, hey, you were never here and uh, I have to confess that I cheated on you. So it's, it's especially when it comes to personal relationships, that's what you hear quite often. Beside of what you already said, how did you, for yourself at that point, were able to make that work in, in, in your relationship with your now wife? Well, my wife believed in me. So I guess the key is you want to find someone who believes in you. I mean, you need someone to support you. You know, I mean, it's true. You know, behind every successful entrepreneur, there's a successful spouse. That's for sure. We've heard this for years, right? Behind every successful president, there's a successful first lady or first man, right? We've heard about it. You know, my wife believed in me and, you know, she had the vision um, and she never complained. By the way, that was key. And she knew that I had to go on crazy business trips and work crazy hours and 
have this amazing stress. And she was a great advisor too. If, if it was a critical issue, of course, I'd ask her about it. What do you think of this? It was a critical issue for the company. Um, so I, I, I was just, I guess you could say I'm lucky. I, I hate to use that word. I guess I'm using the word now too. To me, that's really important. You know, you, you have to ask yourself, you know, is your partner going to support you in this? And, and, you know, unfortunately, some partners or spouses are um, too short-sighted or they don't understand the bigger vision that you're trying to achieve. And then they start causing all this friction and, and kind of like the example you just brought up and, you know, and, and frankly, you know, you know, the great success in this world and in life are going to come for the people who have the vision and the patience. If you look at like the current startup ecosystem, um, uh, Asia worldwide, Hong Kong, um, if you had a magic wand, what would be the, the thing that you would change or, or wouldn't you change anything right now? Yeah, it's so funny because like we don't think about it that way, right? We understand their hurdles and problems and we try to overcome them, right? And, and so in some ways, I mean, I, I've never really thought about um, how I would change it because, you know, our DNA, right? As you know, Jeff, you're an entrepreneur too, right? Well, like you never think about, you know, when, when, when you had your, your other company, right? I'm sure you didn't think about. I wish some sort of magical higher being which, which would change the environment for me. It's, it's, it's always, hey, these are problems and hurdles and I'm going to try to figure them out. Um, but having said that, I suppose there's a lot of capital and that capital might be mispriced or may not be properly risk adjusted. It might be useful, I suppose, in a more healthier environment to have you know, the allocation of capital into startups being a little bit more maybe accountable, slightly less reckless. I think that makes it easier for all of us. I'm hoping that people's mentality, uh, they don't take themselves too seriously. I think some people, you know, they, you know, like they create some silly app that's kind of lame, but somehow it takes off and then they think they're a genius. And um, maybe we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously about some of the things we're doing in, in this world. And we should just laugh when we make mistakes and, and also laugh when we have successes and not really think that, um, you know, like we're at the center of the world. I, 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 I think that's probably important too. Um, I, I think a lot of people, yes, it's kind of in vogue, I, I guess, make a contribution back to society. And, and like, I like what I see. Um, maybe there can be more of it. Um, I know, you know, we have the, uh, you know, like we have the giving pledge and there's the founders pledge and all sorts of pledges here and there. So there's, <laughs> I guess there's a lot of pledge companies out there, right? Um, I like the creativity, but uh, you know, it's involved and all that sort of stuff. And maybe, um, you know, maybe we could see more of that too. I think that'd be good. And and lastly, you know, I have two young daughters, and you know, I, I realize that in many ways the world has not been fair to women. And I'm I'm hoping that um, the world can be more fair, and and women can, I think, like President Obama. I mean, I, I can't believe I'm quoting President Obama. I didn't vote for him, but you know. Um, you know, he um, obviously uh, made a quote recently that um, he thinks that if women were, were running the place, they would do much better than men, right? The place meaning the world, right? And so I'm hoping um, we can see more opportunities for young women. Oh, and, and by the way, and older women too, by the way, right? You know, like ageism is, is, is a problem too, right? There's a lot of people with experience that can make a contribution and, and hopefully we can, you know, or we can utilize them in fair ways. Is there like one thing that is not a secret, but like most people don't know about you? 
I mean, I love science fiction. I love SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, in fact, I recently uh, uh, joined the board of trustees of the SETI Institute. So Congratulations. I, thank you. So it's a great passion of mine. And you know, Jill Tarter and Bill Diamond from the Institute are just, and Frank Drake, I mean, amazing visionaries. And I'm just so fortunate to be part of that amazing adventure of exploration. So that's exciting for me. Is there any like like one thing, one content, podcast, book that you would uh, advise to the listeners to like at least get a nose in? But besides listening to Mia Culpa, but you know, but the key thing about it is, you know, we need to double our knowledge every eighteen months, right? Moore's law of knowledge, you know, and um, it, it, and so it's going to mean listening to some interesting podcasts and books. Um, I, I think if if there were some specific books. Um, I, I think the one that really changed my thinking, which I read um, many years ago, was um, Kenichi Omai's uh, The Mind of the Strategist. And um, he's an ex-McKinsey guy, so thinks very rows and columns and systematically. Um, but, you know, that book, I, I think, is one of the – I think it's just a brilliant book on how to think about problems in an extremely systematic way with a strong financial bent. I, th I think that book has a great um, an impact on my thinking. I think secondly – um, it, it's it, it's actually a bit dated, but Burn Rate it was written by um, Michael Wolf. Um, but um, you know, Burn Rate, uh, which takes place in the '80s, so, so it's a bit dated. But he has a very cheeky, lighthearted view of his experience as an entrepreneur, and and I think it's just a great lesson on how we ourselves need to be lighthearted um, and not take ourselves too seriously. Okay. Uh Thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank you for your valuable insights and uh, sharing of your lessons in startups. Um, for the listeners, although the rating system of Protels is hideous, if you like this May Cooper series, you can rate this podcast for five stars as a motivation for the makers. This is uh, Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful. And uh, thanks again, Fritz, for doing this. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. Build something meaningful. I love it. <laughs>